In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is The Art of Possibility by Rosamond Stone Zander and Benjamin Zander. The Art of Possibility, Transforming Professional and Personal Life. Uh, my brother Parham, he recommended that book to me. He said he really enjoyed it. I don't know much else about it other than that, but looking forward to reading and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. What We Owe the Future. And uh, this book is, um, he's a, himself a philosopher, William McCaskill, and as he describes early in the book, it's about what he calls long-termism, or maybe it's not what he calls, but this concept of long-termism, which he describes as the idea that positively influencing the long-term future is a key moral priority of our time. So essentially it's looking at what do we owe the future, future generations, not just sometimes we say our kids and our grandkids, but really he's talking about a grand time scale. If we think even thousands, hundreds of thousands, even potentially millions of years, and he gets into how we might think about these things or how that might be possible. Um, but essentially that is the main theme of the book is should we care, or here's a view that we should care, about positively influencing the long-term future. So that is a moral priority. And he goes through different aspects of that, and I'll explain more some of the things he gets to more details. But in trying to understand even this concept, why would future people count? Why, why should we care about people 10,000 years from now? And, and I have my own thoughts on that as well. But what he shares is an analogy, he says... Uh, I'll read this from the book. To see how intuitive this is, suppose that while hiking, I drop a glass bottle on the trail and it shatters. And suppose that if I don't clean it up, later a child will cut herself badly on the shards. In deciding whether to clean it up, does it matter when the child will cut herself? Should I care whether it's a week or a decade or a century from now? No. Harm is harm whenever it occurs. And I thought that's a nice, simple analogy that we would intuitively agree with if you thought you dropped some glass and it was very possible someone could walk on that glass and get hurt and you cleaned it up, you'd be cleaning it for some potential future person that could get hurt because you think it's the right thing to do to prevent that harm. But you wouldn't know when, really even if, you'd just be going by that possibility and that likelihood and that sense of responsibility. If someone would actually hurt themselves was not even known to you, but the when doesn't really matter either. You wouldn't think, well, if it's a year from now, I don't care if a child cut their foot on this glass. You think that's something I, I want to prevent. I'm not okay with that. So I, I think, of course, even now this issue comes up where people will say, how do we get people to care about other people? And it's not always so simple to say, 
how to get other people to care about others. And then here he's making the argument, not only care about other people alive now, but we really should be thinking about how other people in the future will be affected by what we do or we don't do right now. And so in sharing his framework about how we think about the future, he talks about significance, persistence, and contingency as a wave a mental framework. And so the significance is how important or how much things will change based on that thing you we do or don't do. And actually, I'll get into that, that it's not just about what we do, it's about what we don't do, which itself is, is something. So um, significance is the average value that will be added or that happens based on what you do. Persistence is how long that state of affair would last. So if you make some change, how long is that going to last? And the third in his framework is contingency. And that's essentially the proportion of the time that would not have been in this state of affairs anyway. So let's say you make something happen that would have happened in a week. That's not that different as opposed to if you did something that wouldn't have happened for 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. So let's say you're um, researching cancer treatments. If you find a treatment that wouldn't have been discovered a thousand years from now, that's a really big deal. The contingency is high, high there. But if it was going to be discovered the next day, let's say, in some kind of hypothetical, it would have less of a significance. So he says that we can think through things about how we affect the future, looking at these three factors, significance, persistence, and contingency. And so he also explains different ways that we can think about how we affect the long term. One is if we affect the actual survival of the species or not. And so in talking about that, he gets into things like climate change and how that can lead to the end of the world, um, even pandemics or engineered pandemics, when we have biological labs that create viruses, things like that, how that might uh, affect things, uh, wars and different way, nuclear wars and things of that sort. So he, he says that we have an impact on whether or not the species even survives into the future. That's one way. And the other is the course or how things go. So of course, if we were to survive another 100 million years, but people are constantly suffering, that not necessarily isn't a good thing. So we intuitively, or at least for me, it makes intuitive sense that when we think about how we affect the future world, we want to make their lives better if we, want, if we care about them at all. So we can look at those two ways of affecting things. And so if we look at how he even discusses the, the ways we affect the trajectory of the future, he talks about moral values and how that impacts things. So moral change and value lock-in. So moral change, of course, he, he actually gets into a lot of detail about abolition, the end of slavery in m much of the Western world. And often we think in the United States, for example, that it was inevitable, or he says how many people share theories that it was economic in nature, and so the economics would have made it happen anyway. But he discusses how many historians would not agree with that uh, conceptualization of what happened, that it's not just it was going to happen anyway, it was purely economic, that there were some people that pushed things forward. There was abolitionists that were significant in pushing forward that this is morally unacceptable for people to own other people. And even as I say that, it can be almost sounds logically laughable. It's not laughable because of how much people suffered, but laughable to think that that was even okay to begin with. But this itself is a reason why we have to be very mindful of how we affect the values and the morals of society going forward. And so he talks about how people made big changes to make slavery 
come to an end. It wasn't something that was going to be inevitable. Of course, we never know exactly how things would play out in a counterfactual if some things didn't happen. But it does seem that people made a huge impact in that. And so we can be aware of what are the moral issues we can make an impact in now as well. What are the values we want to pass in or pass on to the future generations? And I think that's a very important thing to think about. And it's also hard for us to come up with something. This is where we do face challenges, because how do we agree on what are the right values to pass on? How do we agree on what are the right things to um, make sure are part of our society and not part of society? It's not as simple. Some things like slavery, of course, will seem very simple, but we have to keep in mind that when slavery existed, for many people, they were less clear as we are now. And so similarly, there might be moral factors or issues that we have to consider ourselves that we might think we understand, but really we don't know. And so he even talks about having some flexibility in how things change over time, because what we try to understand now, uh, or how we understand things now, will be missing a lot of important things. So I always try to think about how I am attempting to be more aware of injustices in the world and what things are not okay. But I also have the awareness that as much as I think I'm being aware, there's things that I'm probably not even aware of. Maybe things that I talk about on the show all the time that 10 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, people will think, how could he think that was okay? Or how could he think that was true? And so I try to challenge myself to think ahead a bit, but I know it's always going to be limited. Um, now, coming back to this idea of long-termism and thinking about future generations, we know that people are very bad at doing lots of what we consider um, critical thinking or thinking about moral issues when they are abstract, especially. And so, as I was saying, we even have a hard time caring about people that are alive today, unfortunately. We see that happening often, the indifference of suffering of people. And part of that is not because we're just so bad, in my opinion, it's not that we're so bad or inhumane. It's that it's hard for us to feel something about things when they're so abstract. So if I tell you 100,000 people are starving in some country, you probably will say, oh, that's horrible. But most people most of the time don't do anything. But if you saw one person who was starving and in pain right next to you, almost all of us would react and just jump up and do something to help that person. And so the way our brains and our bodies work is that when we see someone, it has a much bigger impact on us. That makes sense. And how our uh, brains evolved was only to be able to do things for the people that were around us. So unfortunately, we're not very good at doing things for people who are far away from us now, let alone to think about someone who's going to be alive a thousand years from now. And that should I have any moral obligation to that person? We might think maybe, but when it comes to taking actions, we might not want to do much. But I do agree with this mindset that we can't just think, well, the environment is for us now. So if something happens, it happens. Maybe the future generations will figure it out um, or that who cares about those future generations. I think if you care about life and how people are experiencing life, then it makes sense for us to at least consider and be very mindful of how what we do affects people in the future to have this moral thinking or moral determination that the decisions we make now, thinking about how they'll affect people in the future. I do think that's something to think about. And also, one thing to be aware of, I mentioned this about doing nothing. We might think, well, we don't know 
what to do. He does talk about that. It's not that it's clear to know that if we do these specific things, definitely people's lives in the future will be better. Um, even if we could control things, that wouldn't be the case, let alone the fact that we can try to do things and it doesn't work out and might have unintended consequences. And so we might think, well, because we don't know, let's do nothing. Uh, we can't make these kinds of decisions. But the truth is, we always are making a decision, even if that decision is inaction. So if you are sick and you say, should I go to the doctor or not? Not going to the doctor isn't doing nothing. We might say, well, you did nothing to help yourself, but you still made a decision not to go. And so when we're making decisions about, let's say, the environment or how we do with deal with nuclear weapons and, and things of that sort, we have to be aware that doing nothing is making a decision. Inaction is always a decision. I quickly wanted to make a note about, uh, maybe you can call it a criticism or critique, or at least my experience of reading the book, was that he often, he talked a lot about economics, which is understandable in understanding how we, the state of the world, and also even bringing about change. Anything you want to do in today's world, it's going to take money to make that happen. But I did feel at times this over-reliance on what I might consider economic thinking or financial thinking, that many things were um, conceptualized with the framework of money and how much things cost or how much would it cost or the cost of living or wealth and income, which definitely have huge impacts on well-being today. But I wonder that when we think of future generations, is it going to be as much about financial thinking or thinking about money? And even when we think about well-being, he, he does share the research about income and well-being and wealth and, and well-being. But we also know, and he talks about how hunter-gatherer tribes at times seem to be as happy or happier, depending on which ones you look at. Of course, they're not all going to be the same um, than people in what we consider the industrialized civilizations and cultures. So the hunter-gatherer civilizations might be happier. And to me, there's some intuitive sense because they're focused on the things that we see make people happier. Things like relationships, being close to family, being close to loved ones. These are the things that make people feel good overall. And so if they're more focused on those things, maybe that's what's going to make them happier rather than economic growth being this indicator of well-being. So uh, even I wonder if passing down this value of economic focus is something that we should think of as the best way to think about things and a value that we pass down the generations. That's something that's, of course, very long-term, but this book's about long-term types of thinking. And so that was just something that I, I was struck by is how much the focus was on economics and money or financial types of things, when I think that might be, to me, missing the point of overall well-being. But the, the the thought process to me was very, very important. I, I think it's very critical that we don't neglect our responsibility to future generations, um, not just short term, but long term. So it uh, made me think about things in a way I hadn't before, looking at the grand scope of human history, but also the human future that really could be essentially infinite if we go to either other planets because our sun, let's say, burns out in a certain number of years, but really can be much longer than we sometimes think of things of decades or generations, but thousands and hundred thousands or millions of years, and how small changes in our course now can have bigger impacts down the line and something we want to be mindful of. So that was the book, What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, What We Owe the Future by William McCaskill. And the book is about long-termism, thinking about what we can do, or that it is something we should consider, what we can do for the future generations, and going really long-term about that. Um, and so you might think, okay, well, this uh, philosophy sounds good, but I'm not in politics, or I'm not someone making big decisions, so what can I do? Or maybe it doesn't even apply to me. And so um, I would not agree with that, and he doesn't either. He talks about what we can do and the actions we can take and how you can think about these things. Um, he doesn't even share about how, you know, there's reductions in plastic consumption and things, which isn't necessarily bad, but the impact is not so substantial. But there's other ways we can get involved or do things. Now, one thing to keep in mind here when we think about our impact going forward, and it's something that I've talked about at length recently in discussions about what's happening in Iran and what we each can do or, or should do, is a focus on responsibility versus results. Meaning, are we fixated on seeing a specific result, and especially in a short amount of time? Or, in my opinion, we would be better off focusing on what is my responsibility and am I making sure I'm f meeting that to the fullest degree possible? Am I meeting my responsibility, the possibility and the potential of what I can do? And so I felt this very strongly because, sadly, what we're see seeing happening in Iran, even though the people have been incredibly brave and have done so much, uh, it does appear that it's going to be a long-term process for significant change to take place for a revolution to take place. And of course, as I've mentioned before, I am in no way um, going to be able to give advice to anyone in Iran, and I'm just inspired and in awe of them and the, the things that they are doing. I, at times, am speaking to myself and those of us outside of Iran and what we are doing and how we can support. And so because I saw how long-term, again, this book was talking about long-term sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of years, but even here, long-term, that it's not just going to be a few weeks or even months, I was concerned that we could see burning out from the people in the Iranian diaspora who are supporting the Iranians by spreading awareness, sharing news, reaching out to politicians, that we might burn out thinking, well, nothing happened yet, so why should I keep doing anything? Or does it even make a difference? And so for me, reading this book was a reminder of the importance of this mindset that to not just get fixated and focused on seeing a result because very often you don't see results but we focus on our responsibility or on doing the right thing which is related to that responsibility am i doing the right thing you know another way we can think about this of course the stakes much much lower than the issues i've been talking about so far is let's say you want to exercise or lose weight right? So you do the right thing for a day or two. And if you go on the scale, you might not see any change in your weight and feel like, well, what was the point? There's no results here. I should just go back to doing the things I was doing anyway. Now, of course, even the scale itself might not be the best indicator of health. It really isn't a great indicator of health and it might not move. And also weighing yourself every day might not be the best idea if that's what you were doing. But what you would hopefully focus on is if I'm doing the right things, I want to keep doing those right things, 
and go forward. So if I ate healthier and I exercised, those are good things. If I believe in the value of those things, I should continue doing them. Now, of course, here it is a little bit different. You might get some feedback and results in a a longer short term, let's say in a week or two, or if you see certain patterns emerge, you might make changes in what you're doing. But the point I'm trying to make is that if you get too fixated on seeing an immediate result, you'll stop doing the good thing, the right thing. In this case, healthier for your physical body. In this other sense, the more helpful thing to others or what might be the morally right thing to do. So that's why I was saying, and I agreed with uh, William McCaskill in the book, of paying attention to the moral changes we make in the world and the values that we create because these things can get locked in is that we want to encourage doing the right things and creating a society that encourages the right things that have values like, let's say, um, reducing suffering of people. That's something that most people would agree with, that if we have people that are suffering, if we can make it less, that's a good thing. Um, Making things more equitable, more fair, more just. And of course, already we might get into the um, disagreements that people can have of what does it mean to be fair. That's why I said these things are challenging. But coming back to ourselves, and if we're looking at, for example, what's happening in Iran, you might think, well, what's the right thing for me to do to share the news and spread awareness, or is the right thing to not do those things? And so that's something that we have to ask ourselves. I think most people would agree that it's the right thing to do. But if we get focused on seeing results, we have seen things that have happened. For example, the UN Council uh, getting involved, more people spreading awareness, certain governments doing certain things. We, of course, wish they would do more to bring about awareness, but we have seen things happen. So I don't mean this to say we haven't seen any results, but I do hear people at times saying, well, does it mean Um, It's not going to happen, so maybe I should stop. And I've heard people tell me I've stopped sharing anything or getting involved in any way because nothing's happened so far, and it's just going to keep being that way. But I think if we focus on what's my responsibility, what can I do, am I doing that, we hopefully will have a different mindset and we'll stay more motivated because I'm focused on me. Did I do enough? Not did everything change because of what I did. And I hope we think about this mindset in general because when you look at most problems or issues in the world, or even in ourselves, or even in relationships, or if you're a parent, most things don't show you very quick and tangible results that are meaningful. If you're worried about suffering in the world on any major issue, nothing that you do today is going to make that issue just go away, especially if it has any significance or if it's big enough affecting lots of people. And this is why people tend not to do things. Oh, so many people are hungry. Well, I can't help all of them. Maybe I should just not do anything at all. And we actually almost convince ourselves at times unconsciously that the problem is not worth getting involved in, or maybe it's not worth it, or what difference does it make, or maybe the people have some responsibility for being in the situation that they're in. And so we end up helping zero people when we could have helped at least some or helped a few. So I hope all of us will think about What is my responsibility as a human being, as a citizen, given the potentials I have to help other people, given the possibilities I have? Not only that, getting creative, not just doing the things you simply see in front of you, but taking risks that might help other people. By taking risks, I mean trying a new project, trying some kind of artistic expression, reaching out to someone you might be afraid to reach out to or nervous about reaching out to because they might judge you in some way. 
but making the effort to find even new ways to be helpful because that's each of our responsibility. Uh, I've been thinking about regret. I read a book last year, maybe it was even this year, The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink, which I thought was quite fascinating. Thinking about regret in actually a positive way. Obviously, regret is a negative feeling, but it can have positive value in that when we think about the things we regret, it can help us learn lessons about, well, based on what I wish I didn't do, or I did or didn't do in the past, what can I do now or in the future? Or even what can I share with others to do or not do? And this is why we hear, sometimes it's cliche to, to say this, but there's a lot of truth that people on their deathbed or as they're getting older, they have words for the youth that make sure you, you know, spend time with your loved ones or don't be afraid of this or take these kinds of risks because they now have this regret that I wish I, I did or didn't do these things in my life. And the reason why I think regret can be powerful in this way is that we can reflect on at the end of our lives. What is it that we might regret that we did or we didn't do in our life? And what we actually do find people that research people's regrets is more often what they regret are the things they didn't do. There's a wonderful quote by Mark Twain, which I don't have memorized on this topic, but most of the time people regret more things they didn't do rather than, oh, I I did this thing and it was embarrassing, or I did this thing and I failed, or I did this thing and it didn't go well. People tend to regret those things way less than the things they didn't do. I wish I thought about changing my career when I had that job opportunity, or I wish I reached out to that friend. That was a common one. People lost touch with friends and they didn't reach out because they thought it'd be awkward or maybe the person would be mad at them or whatever reason, and they just wouldn't do it. So we often find that people regret more the things they didn't do than things they did. And one of the things I think we can easily regret is that we didn't do more to help others, that we didn't do more to make the world a better place, to have a positive impact doesn't mean if we did those things we would have solved any issues completely or eradicated suffering completely that's not our responsibility we can't do that but we might have the sense that i could have done so much more to help other people and i wish i had done that i actually hope people will have that regret well i hope they'll do all they can to help people but i hope that's the mindset that people have that one of the things we consider or we think about of a life well lived is what was my impact on other people. When I talk about success, I often say that we have the definition of success backwards. Most of the time when people think of who's a successful person, we think of someone who's rich and famous. Well, who's the wealthiest person in the world? That's successful. Or who has the most followers on Instagram? That's successful. And those are all things about what people get. So we usually think of successful people as someone who has a lot. They've got a lot of money, a lot of fame, a lot of things, and that makes them successful, what they get. But I actually think it's the other way around. We should measure success based on what people have given, given to the world, given to others, shared with people. What's the positive contribution you gave to the world, not what you got from the world? And so in that sense, I hope we all become as successful as we possibly could can, which means we build ourselves up, we take care of ourselves too in this process of giving to make sure we're as strong, as good, as knowledgeable, whatever it is you're doing to be the best you can be, and then to give that gift to others and to give in all the ways that we can. And I can't imagine being on your deathbed and feeling like I wish I gave less to the world. I wish I took care of less people or contributed less to the world. 
So I hope we'll think about how we can give those gifts. And again, to focus on the responsibilities we each have and the potentials we each have, rather than getting tied into the results of seeing something happen. It's really tough with big issues and things that matter. Most of the time you won't see a positive impact. You don't get to see the results. But if you think if something is right and you know you can do it, I hope we all think that it's our responsibility to do so and failure to do so would mean that I'm not being a success because I could have given more. All right, that brings us to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, one of the topics I mentioned was regret and how it actually can be a good thing. And I did go on to explain that. But this can be counterintuitive for people when they hear something like that, that regret can be good um, because we know that regret doesn't feel good. And so in this last segment, I wanted to talk about a theme that I, I discuss often because I think it's so important, which is that there are good things about bad feelings or things that feel bad or things that don't feel good aren't necessarily not good, which is very counterintuitive. We would think, well, something feels good, it's good. If it feels bad, it's bad. And of course, it feels bad when it's happening. But what I think is important to keep in mind is that all of our feelings, they are information first and foremost. You feel something, it's giving you some kind of information. You feel something good, it means something good or favorable is happening. You feel something bad, something not so good is happening. That sounds pretty simple, but it can be a little bit more nuanced than that because when you feel something good, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. Let's say in an extreme example, if you have a drug addiction, if you don't take that drug for a while, you're going to feel bad. It doesn't feel good. You, have, you go through withdrawals. If you take that drug again, you're going to feel good in that moment that you take the drug again. That feels good. So we know that our feelings are very helpful. They are really what guide our actions much more than we often even realize, but that we have to be a little more mindful or aware of what we're feeling, why we're feeling and what that means. And if it's really good or bad for us to go based on that feeling to guide our actions. So a lot of short term things that feel good can hurt us. They feel good in the moment. But this book I was talking about is about the long term, even in the long term of our own lives, sometimes a short long term, they might cause us pain or discomfort. So it's not enough for us just to go based on things feeling good and feeling bad. It has a lot of value, but it's not enough to just stop there to think if it feels good, go forward. If it feels bad, go away. So I wanted to talk in this segment about the good and the bad feelings. So in the last segment, I mentioned regret that as much as it's a negative feeling. And often people think, what's the point of regret? You shouldn't regret anything. Or it's a very common thing saying no regrets or I never regret a thing I did. I'm mean, actually about regret in that when people say that often you'll hear people say, I don't regret a thing I did because it made me the person I am today. And I think there definitely is a value to that when we consider sometimes we made mistakes that we learned from, sometimes we went through some hardships that we we. Uh, felt made us stronger in some way. There is, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. Does have some value as a, a quote that things that we go through hardships, challenges can actually make us stronger and that can be quite good. And so I don't think it's it's a purely bad way to think about things, to think of the positive and some of the negative. But to think no regrets 
to me seems like a way of just trying to convince ourselves that we don't have to feel bad or we, we should feel okay. Because anyone you've hurt in your life, if you don't feel bad about that, or if you could do it again, would you not take those things back? To me, it's a bit surprising to say that or things that even hurt yourself. And I know, you know, what, what doesn't kill yourself, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is, is a good quote, but there's ways we can damage ourselves that we don't get back. If you made bad health decisions and now are paying the price, would you say, I don't regret that now that you're living with some kind of bad health? Or if you did ba- bad financial decisions that are really hurting you now or hurting your loved ones, would you say you don't regret that? And not everyone's will be as extreme as that. But I think we all can look back in our lives and think, there's things I could have done better. I, w- I think that's actually a very healthy way to look at things. Yeah, to dwell on it every moment and every day, that can be very unhealthy. But to learn from it, I think could actually be quite powerful. And this notion that I don't regret anything I did or anything that happened to me because it's made me the person that I am, which which is true. But I don't think that means that this is the only version of you that would be lovable or good. If you made some different decisions, it wouldn't make you unlovable. That doesn't mean by saying that this version of you is unacceptable, but it could mean that you did things that were better, that made you better. If I could be healthier today than I am today, I, I would prefer that. And I wish I made some different decisions that could have promoted that. And so rather than being shameful about that, I would hope I use that to make better decisions now and going forward. So we can see that regret sounds negative, of course. And so the reaction is to quickly go away from it. If you have regret, no, no, you don't need to feel regret. There's no need to, you shouldn't feel that way. And this is how we respond ourselves and to others when it comes to essentially any negative feeling. You probably, if you think about it, you don't even realize it because it's so unconscious. Someone's sad, we just quickly think, let's make them not sad. Oh, you're sad about that? No, you don't need to be sad about that. No need to be sad. No, who cares? Oh, that happened? Oh, there's a million fish in the sea or this can happen or everything happens for a reason. And we just find a way to try to make the bad feeling disappear. And we can get that. It makes sense. Essentially, when we feel something bad, the reason why it works that way is to make us resolve something although it's not exactly the same but let's say a feeling of thirst you feel thirsty you feel bad it drives you towards drinking water to resolve that bad feeling to go away now you feel okay you feel relief you feel good you get back to some kind of homeostasis but what i think is important is to be mindful of this such a strong pull towards going away from a bad feeling that we lose the information and the lesson that can be there So let's say you're working out and your leg starts hurting. So you might say pain doesn't feel good. So isn't it better for me not to feel pain? So no, my leg doesn't hurt. We convince ourselves that we don't hurt. Or let's say we numb it. We can do something. But let's say even internally I find a way. If I can find a way to ignore my pain, that's going to be good. Now, there definitely is something to no pain, no gain. When you're working out, you do have to have microscopic tears in your muscles that then get repaired and make you stronger. You have to put resistance, right? If you put no weight, you'll never get stronger. You have to put weight that makes it harder. You have to carry some kind of a burden in that way, but it's going to make you stronger. But you also could be working out in a way that's hurting your ligaments, your knees, different parts of your body that's damaging you. So if we say, okay, I have pain, pretend like it's not there you're going to miss understanding what the information is that that pain is giving you. So you have to go next level with it. Okay, I feel a pain. Is this the good pain of my muscles burning because they're getting stronger or will get stronger? 
Or am I damaging myself in some way that actually isn't good? I'm going to get injured and actually be weaker because of it. Because of this workout, I actually can end up weaker if I do it the wrong way, if I ignore what the pain is telling me. So in our emotional body, the same thing applies. You can be talking to a friend and they say something mean. Now you can just say, well, I don't want to care what people say. And that's what people say. Who cares what people think? You shouldn't care what people think. Well, that's true to a degree. It can be important and recognize that we tend to overvalue other people's opinions and what they think of us. That is true. But to say that you shouldn't get hurt by your friend saying something bad, I don't think that's true. If you care about this friend and have a close relationship with them, then it's understandable that them saying something mean to you is going to hurt your feelings. Just like if they say something nice to you, it's going to feel good. And so this is where another area where the value of the bad feelings comes in is that in order to feel good about things, or let's say in a relationship, to let it feel good, you have to be open to letting it feel, make you feel bad in the same amount. So if you are dating someone and you start a relationship, if you never let yourself that get that close to them, they can't hurt you that much. So that's what a lot of people do in life. We don't get that close to people because if we never get that close, we can never get that hurt. If you don't care about the person you're even dating, how could they hurt you? Because, okay, they left. I didn't even care about them. Who cares? Or people even do this. They'll be with multiple people because that way, well, no one can hurt me that much because I have many different people. No one can really hurt me that much if I have many different people. But none of those people can make them feel that good either. They'll be missing out on the degree of intimacy they can have, emotional intimacy and closeness. So they're limiting how good things will feel. So if you're in a relationship and you allow yourself to be vulnerable, which actually at times being vulnerable feels bad in the moments when we have to take the risk or in the moments when we have to open up, that cannot feel very good to us. So you might say, well, I don't want to face that pain. That pain means go away from it. Well, if you avoid that pain, you avoid how close you can be and how good that relationship can feel. So if you want to feel a certain amount of good in a relationship, you have to risk feeling a certain amount of bad or that same amount of bad in that relationship. And so this is related to another theme that I talk about often, which is, and related to the exercising analogy, that one of the challenges of life is differentiating between the pain that is leading to damage and the pain that's leading to growth. Because I've also seen people in a relationship and they're in a toxic relationship physically or verbally or emotionally abusive on some level and they think, well, yeah, love is supposed to hurt or relationships are supposed to be difficult. So this is the hard part of a relationship. But that's like working out and damaging your knee and keep going thinking that the workout is supposed to hurt or no pain, no gain. That's a pain that's leading to damage. That's hurting you and is only going to cause further pain and damage. That's not good hurt in a relationship. However, you can be in a relationship or when we're talking about this in life in general, and there's things that don't feel good that cause some pain or discomfort, but that lead to growth. Okay, I'm facing a new challenge at work. I could just say, oh, I don't want to do it or I can't do it. I should go away from it. That feels better in the moment. Or I can recognize that this pain or discomfort is the kind of pain and discomfort that leads to me growing. And I get that conceptually, it's very easy to think about that, especially now just imagining a person's life. But when we're in it, in it, it can be very hard to differentiate. Is this pain leading to damage or is this pain leading 
to growth because they both in the moment can feel the same way. It just feels like go away from this. And that's why I'm saying don't just think of negative feelings as something you go away from. They can be telling you somewhere where on the other side of that bad feeling, something very good is there. Having an uncomfortable talk with your loved one doesn't feel good when you're going into it. Most people are going to go away from it. But if you go into it and handle it with respect and clear communication, you will likely get to even a better place than you could have ever been if you avoided that conversation altogether. So determining between the two is really critical and it involves that next level. Okay, this doesn't feel good, but how can I understand this more deeply? It's telling me to go away from it, but what is it that I'm going away from? Something that's genuinely hurtful, harmful, or something that I'm afraid of or have anxiety about, but actually will help me get stronger or get better. So with a friend, if they're making you feel sad, one, as I said, you can't just let them make you feel good but never make you feel bad but two you might not let yourself see that this person is hurting you and so if you take in that information that i'm hurt by what they said one you can try to resolve it with them but two you might become aware that this person is going to keep hurting me or let me pay attention to these patterns another negative emotion that um, or when i say negative feels negative that sometimes has a bad reputation is anger And I think anger is one of the more challenging feelings that we have. But like all the other feelings, it does have value when we allow it to be informative and not destructive in our lives. But anger is an emotion that can cause a lot of destruction. Things like aggression and violence and abuse and hurting others can come from anger or can be related to our anger. And so because of that, because it could feel so scary in that way, Very often people just think, well, I should avoid anger altogether, never get angry, never go into a conflict, avoid conflicts as much as possible because it's a little bit more scary. And it's an understandable position. No one should really like conflict as in I can't wait to be in a fight or an argument or a disagreement. But if we avoid it because we're so afraid of it, we again miss these chances for growth, miss these chances for expression, miss these chances for actually making our relationships better. And so anger means something that someone did made you feel wronged in some way. Either they violated something or they're coming into your space or you feel threatened by them. And the anger is a response to say, hey, that's not okay. I don't want to, I'm not going to accept that or that's not acceptable. Now, if we just let anger run the show completely, we might do things that are destructive to others and even to ourselves. So I'm not, of course, saying anger is all good and anything you do with anger is good. I don't think that of any of the feelings, even happiness. Happiness can make us make bad decisions because we become overly optimistic and might not be as realistic as we need to be. So I think all of our feelings are informative and helpful, but it's a piece of information, not the whole pie. So it's not like, well, I felt sad about this, so I did this, or I was mad about this, so I did this. I was mad about this, and I tried to understand my anger better, and I still felt angry, and then I decided to respond in this way. That's really good. That could be very helpful in protecting yourself against others, protecting yourself in your relationships, even letting your partner know or person you care about know, this is not something I'm okay with. So you can express it to them, even still with with love and respect, but still making sure they know that you're angry and don't feel good about it. So to conclude this segment, as I was saying, it's very important to just be mindful of how our feelings guide us and they guide so much of our behavior, but being also aware that we don't just get pulled into this positive, negative 
go towards, go away from, because we're often missing the full information of what our feelings are telling us. Going a little bit deeper can help us recognize where might this feeling be coming from? Why might I be feeling it? And now what do I want to do with this information along with what else I think about it? What else I want to do? What other feelings might even be involved in this same situation? So not all good feelings are good. Not all bad feelings are bad. Let's try to find the good in all of them as far as the good and the information that they share to us. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Ghazaleh here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.